Wow, I wish I was from Palm Desert. Hi, my name's Lexi. I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> and actually, I'm from the beautiful uh, metropolis of Apple Valley. There's not one damn apple in the whole town. Uh, not one. Um, well, a lot of those. It's one of the things that's attractive about it. I'm, I'm a cowgirl by uh, blood and uh, quarter horse girl, and that's a good place to be if, if you're into horses. But with that said, I want to thank Ryan and Tim for the opportunity to come share with you this evening. Um, I always try to remember to say that first, because once I get into that self-centered me, I, and my story, I may forget. <laughs> so thank you so much um, for having me here this evening. Um, on the way over here, I, I uh, miscalculated and made an assumption, which I've made a lot of those in my lifetime. And uh, we ended up over in Laguna and we went to the 230 Cafe there on Forest and thought it's just a John away, we're going to the club. Assumption. We get in there and there's a candlelight meeting going on and I'm like, why do I think I've made a rude mistake? <laughs> so I went up to the bar and I said, you got a speakers meeting here tonight? He goes, not in this club. And I just thought, oh my gosh. And the phone calls happen and Ryan put Tim on the phone. And, you know, because we're alcoholics, he led me all the way up until we got on the main drag before we come up to Yosemite. And I was uh, very grateful. And I thank both of you for getting me here safely. And uh, it means the world to me. Um, the three most important things that I'm going to share with you this evening, in my opinion, and this is just my opinion, guys. Um, what you're going to hear tonight is, is my story alone. I don't represent Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm just one of those fortunate people that came in here, got this thing. And despite my shortcomings, you never kicked me out or told me I couldn't come back. And thank God. But uh, I have a sobriety date, and it's November 22nd of 1976. I have a sponsor that I absolutely adore. Her name is Marianne Sutton, um, who my wonderful friend Carol met a couple weeks ago at a speaker's meeting up in our direction. Um, and I've got a home group, which is a Stay Connected, believe it or not, Zoom meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I want to say hello to those people that are on Zoom here this evening. Glad you're here. Glad you're joining us. Um, with that, I'm going to try to, in a general way, give you an idea of what it used to be like, what happened, and what it's like now. I really appreciate your readings. I really appreciate the last one in particular. Because for me, um, and, and I'll tell you, no, I'm not 80. I'm, I'm 61. And I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, and I haven't, haven't found it necessary to take anything that's mind-altering from the neck up since that first sobriety date, and I was 15 years old. So you could say that that particular reading spells out a lot in my life, but this is what I want you to know, and I wanna drive this home if I don't say anything else. Alcoholism is alive and kicking in my body, even though I haven't had a drink in that period of time. And the reason why I can tell you that honestly is that for a long time after I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, it was absolutely necessary for me to continue doing my life on self-will run riot. And there were a lot of people along the way that I hurt and that I was not appropriate with. And um, it took me a long time to get down that what my, my wonderful sponsor, Goldine, who I had for 34 years and she died sober and was an amazing example of sobriety. On those occasions when I would call her 
to tell her what a victim I was, she would one she would once again point out that I was the common denominator. <laughs> yeah, that really pissed me off. You know, I really wanted to be that perpetual victim. I really wanted it to be about what other people did to me. Um, but I signed up for every bit of it. So let me tell you, um, for me, uh, th this is how it was. First of all, I did grow up, unlike my wonderful cohort, Gary and Thanks for coming with me, honey. It's so, so good to have you here with me. Um, I did not have Ozzy and Harriet as mom and dad. That's not my experience. What I had for any of you older people or people who are into older cartoons, I can tell you exactly the best description I can give you of what mom and dad look like. If any of you watched uh, Bullwinkle, uh, if you remember uh, Boris and Natasha, that's my mom and dad. And, and almost to the T. Uh, mom was this very tall, lanky woman of almost six foot. My dad was 5'9". He had the Popeye arms and he had the flat top haircut and the black brim glasses and the crooked teeth. And he would scare me so bad at times that I would urinate on myself. I was so scared of this man. And that was quite often. Um, but with that said, alcoholism was alive and kicking. My mom was the alcoholic in our home. And she was a periodic for many years that I can remember. And then the last two or three years of her drinking, she really picked it up. And, you know, it would be nothing uh, unsurprising for us to get calls from Sybil Brand to go pick her up. My biggest fear when I was little, uh, both uh, before and after I started drinking, the after drinking is for obvious reasons, but before that, the sound of sirens and black and whites coming up behind you as you're driving down the street petrified me. And I don't know about any of you, but back in the early, well, late 50s, early 60s on a lot of the cars, they had what was called curb finders. And they were these rods that would hang out in this direction. Um, and they would help you find the curb if you had trouble finding it on your own. Uh, my mom's problem wasn't that she probably couldn't find it. It was that she was too drunk to find it. So it would be nothing surprising for us to be in the backseat of that uh, old Cadillac listening to that scrape of metal against sometimes it could be bridges on the 10 freeway down in LA, things like that. And, you know, just that fear inside because it was constant. And for her, she was that way a lot of the time. Now, like a lot of us alcoholics, removed the alcohol and she was a PTA mom and she was amazing. She was prompt, on time, involved, um, did all those things that you would expect from a mom. And I would know the gut thing in my in, inside of me would know when she was late picking us up from school, when commitments weren't kept, that there was gonna be that opportunity to see her under the influence again when I went through the front door. And it was like that a lot. And then the fighting. And, you know, surprisingly, you know, my mom, my mom got sober, ironically, the same year that I started drinking. So we had a conflict of interest. <laughs> and she loved Alcoholics Anonymous. And she had come here for two years prior to getting sober. And there were a lot of suicide attempts and a lot of ambulances in the front of our house and a lot of black and whites and all that other stuff. And I hated alcohol with passion. And my dad would wake us up at one or two in the morning because it was time to go look for mom's car at the local bars. So we did a lot of that. 
And I learned how to lie at a very early age. And it was for uh, perseverance. It was to save things because I knew if dad found out where a car was, that the fight would be on. And my mom quite often would wear those big Jackie Onassis sunglasses to cover up the black eyes. And uh, the beatings were terrible. And they talk about the dynamic of the alcoholism as a family disease. And it was a family disease in our home that actually infiltrated into our neighbor's houses because it would be nothing for them to see mom driving up the wrong side of the street on our, our street, which ironically, the name of the street I grew up on was Fellowship. <laughs> um, and it was in an area called Valinda outside of La Puente, California, city of industry. That's where I grew up. It was not a high class neighborhood. It was, you know, pretty shady. And there was a lot of stuff going on around there. And um, I enjoyed that stuff. It was part of the excitement. It was part of what I lived with. And I didn't know any better. Now, I knew that there was something different because we used to watch TV shows like The Brady Bunch, The Partridge Family. I hated them with a passion because I wanted what they had. First of all, it was a novel idea for mom and dad to even sleep in the same bed because they didn't do that in my house. Mom slept on the Naga Hyde, those classy Naga Hyde lounge chairs, and dad slept in the bedroom. And um, I just was not used to affection. I wasn't I used to love or any of the rest of that. Needless to say, what I wanna tell you is, is that I did have an honest fear and an honest dislike for alcohol before I ever ingested it. But the family disease is this, I made those vows to my dad before it was ever necessary that I would never, ever take a drink of alcohol. And I meant it with everything in me. I never thought that would be part of my story. But on a Friday night at a horse auction in El Monte, California, when I was hanging out with a lot of people that were much older than me, out came the bottle of Jim Beam and the banquet beer, you know, the banquet beer Coors. Um, and marijuana. And I got loaded that night to the point of blacking out. And I was 11 years old. And I don't remember very much about what happened. I didn't learn what I did until I went back to make amends to a friend of mine that was there that night. And she told me some of my behavior. And it was just so far fetched that somebody 11 years old would know the filthy mouth that I had, the inappropriate behavior and the anger that I had. And it was like the minute I started drinking, and I don't want to say the first drink because I hear that a lot from people. That's not really my story. But what I knew that night is that if I drank enough, I would feel different. And that's all I wanted. I just wanted to feel different. Um, I had this fantasy as a little kid that uh, Roy Rogers and Dale Evans would ride up to our house with an extra horse and tell me it was all a rude mistake and take me home where I belonged. And I was ready for that every single day of my life because that's what I wanted. And I attended Catholic school. Um, I am not real fond of plaid. Excuse me for anybody wearing plaid. It's not my favorite for obvious reasons. And um, I wore the plaid outfits and went to Catholic school and went to confession and all the rest of that. But all that praying that I was told would help me get what I wanted as a little kid, I did with every bit of passion in me. And none of the things that I dreamt for 
came true. I never got blonde hair. I never got blue eyes. Um, I never got to live in the house with the sidewalk in front of it because I was very impressed by that kind of stuff. Um, you know, I, I, somebody asked once, uh, you know, what was the sign of somebody that really had it good? And I thought blue toilet water was really amazing um, <laughs> because that must mean they've got money. You know what I mean? And I was very impressed with that kind of stuff. But needless to say, uh, at about six, seven years old, I was walking home from school and this old man had moved into the property across the alley from us. And um, he had quarter horses. And I remember I would walk home and I would stop by the fence and I would pull the grass and I would feed the horses through the fence. And they had the most kind, beautiful eyes I've ever seen in my life. And they smelled wonderful. And just the blink of their eyes, everything about them was everything I wanted in my life. And on one occasion when I was out there doing that and I was afraid of getting caught because I didn't know if I would get in trouble for doing this. The old man comes up to the fence and I didn't see him at first. And he, he said, you want, you want to come over and pet him? That was one prayer of my life that finally came true. And I thought, oh my God, I'm going to heaven. This is it. And I remember walking in my house as quick as I could get inside and changing my clothes out of my, my uh, school clothes and uh, going over there and being around these just massively gorgeous animals. And I was, I was absolutely in love and it was everything to me. And um, that old man taught me how to ride. And everybody's got their gift. Everybody's got their thing, whether it be sports or whether it be, you know, my, my brother was a debater and went to Bishop Amat and on to Loyola Marymount and could debate and win all those trophies and everything. I could ride a horse and I was really good at it. And uh, I thought, this is it, man, I've found it. I've found it. And on one particular afternoon, and I can't tell you that it was any different than any other day. We got done with what we were doing and gone into what I, I referred to as grandpa, went into his house and I went to use the bathroom and then something happened that was to change my life forever. And he opened the door of the bathroom and what was to happen next to me happened for four years of my life. And it should not happen to any little girl or any little boy. And it changed everything I felt about my perspective on who I was. I felt dirty, ashamed, ugly, and I knew what my purpose was because he told me. And he said that that's how I would survive. And um, up until the day that I had that first drink alcoholically, I felt that shame and remorse and guilt because I knew it was my fault. I knew it was my fault because everything was my fault. You know, if I wasn't the bad kid, mom wouldn't find it necessary to drink. If I wasn't the bad kid, dad wouldn't be violent. You know, if I wasn't the bad kid, my big sister wouldn't move away and marry, ironically, an alcoholic. <laughs> um, my brother wouldn't leave me and go to school. And I thought everything would just stay the same. And it just doesn't because that's not life. And I was so angry and so hurt and so messed up. And of course, you don't tell your parents this is going on. I wasn't saying nothing to anybody. And when I went to that auction that night, even though everybody knew what was happening to me, I didn't care anymore. It didn't matter. And that I could just be whoever I was behind that drink. And I loved that. So I chased that for four years of my life. 
So when you read that particular reading out of the literature of Alcoholics Anonymous, I can totally relate to a degree, except what I will tell you that I felt like when I went into the recovery house I went to on November 22nd of 76 is that I was exhausted. And the only person I had ever identified with, her name is June G. And she was the first person I had known that I got sober as a, as a teenager. She got sober at 13. I hated her with a passion. My mom had a speakers meeting that she was in charge of getting speakers for. And I remember I'm in, I'm in, you know, the droves of what I'm doing. I'm in, I'm in the daily habit of staying as drunk or loaded as I can. And, uh, she brings this 16 year old girl over to our house and she's just been bragging about her and how wonderful she is. And she's sitting in my living room, you know, violating my space with her sobriety. And I don't like her. I don't want her in my house. I can tell you that, you know, in sobriety, I've had the opportunity to talk to June about that and tell her exactly how I felt. And the truth is, is because she was everything I wanted to be everything and I was so impressed but it was so threatening and and it was definitely on the defense for me that I couldn't like this person because I knew that I was scum and I knew that there was no way I could ever achieve or be what she was but needless to say my mom got really involved in Alcoholics Anonymous and I'll get back to that family disease again because I think it's so important my mom was in the first graduating CAC class in the state of California as a drug and alcohol counselor and then came up with the bright idea. Check this one out if this doesn't get you. Decides to open a recovery house in our home while I am drinking. And I am like not happy again, you know, and she's got these teenage boys and a lot of them went to the schools I went to. They knew the people I hung out with. They knew exactly what the gig was. And I walked around defensive and lying all the time because even worse than trying to defend your right to drink is trying to defend your right to drink in a house where they're all recovering alcoholics. And I'm pissed off. You know, <laughs> I'm just not happy. And, um, with that said, I got in a lot of trouble very quickly. And a lot of it had to do with my attitude, <laughs> which was not pleasant. And I would tell lies and I would do things that were just inappropriate. And I was willing to do anything to get a drink. It didn't matter whether it was in your cupboard, your parents' cupboard, didn't matter, you know, and I always loved this. Why did they put the booze in the back of the 7-Eleven? It makes it so easy to rip off, you know? <laughs> and then the 7-Eleven is right across the street from the high school I'm attending. How convenient, you know? And I remember on one particular day, I'm with a couple of girls who ironically, both their parents were sober in AA also. And we're sitting in the back. We're sitting in my girlfriend's Lincoln Continental. It was about 1972 or 73, and it had the suicide doors. And I was always stuck in the back seat, which pissed me off because the upholstery was going bad on the back seat and I'm sitting on these springs and whatnot, but it got you from point A to point B and wherever the party was, you could get in that car and you would end up where you wanted to be. So I was willing to tolerate that, but we're sitting there and it's about seven o'clock in the morning and we're on our way to school and pop the top of the beer and we're sitting there drinking, joking about which one of us is going to end up being an alcoholic. And I'm not joking. I'm in the back seat and I'm dead quiet. 
because for some reason that sounded way too close to home for me. And, um, you know, then to go home drunk or loaded again to face mom and trying to keep my, my stuff together so she can't figure out that I'm under the influence and then having to lie because I'm going to go to a party that night and I've got to say that I'm going over somebody's house to go somewhere else. No, I, I'm sorry. I get it. I get it that these people that get sober, you know, at 30 years old, 40 years old, 50 years old, yes, you are wrung out and you're tired, but if you don't think I was, you got another thing coming. And um, I wasn't eating and I gotten really, really skinny because all I'm spending my money on is either booze or pot. And I was, I was, I was a pothead. I never did anything more that I'm aware of. Mescaline was real popular at the time that I was out there doing my thing. And I may have come across that, but I can't tell you it was with intent. So I really can't identify with the other 12 step program. I just, it's not my thing because the bottom line is alcohol was so smooth and so easy and I loved it. So needless to say that first night when I drank, all I thought of was how I was gonna drink differently than mom. Now what 11 year old, <laughs> what 11 year old is concerned about that? And I was because it was so damn important for me to be different from her because I resented and I was angry over all of that alcoholism in her blood, running through her brains, and all the behaviors that came with it. It was just not what I wanted to be. I did not want to be like her in that sense. And yet, I did everything she did except go to civil brand. I never got arrested. I hid in a lot of bushes, and I hid in a lot of strange people's garages, because the minute I saw black and white, man, it's like, scoot, let's figure out some place to hide because if they come across me, they're gonna put the cuffs on me because I needed to be arrested. I was loaded all the time. But needless to say, um, mom starts going out to this recovery house in Desert Hot Springs called Turnoff. And it was run by a man who was supposed to do 25 to life for murder. And he did, he killed this individual and his wife who was a prostitute in Hollywood. And they met at the Southern California Convention in Bakersfield one year. And they sat at a table and talked about what they wanted to do. And Sam Hardy said, I wanna rob, I wanna rob Folsom of one more kid. And Ann said, I wanna keep, I wanna keep young girls from having to turn a trick to get another drink or another fix. And the two of them started this recovery house down in Venice, California. And I am happy to say that I was one of the kids that got the opportunity of going in that house and getting clean and sober. And I've never looked back. Now I'm gonna tell you about the recovery because here's the important part. The comment I made earlier about, you can bring your sickness into Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm the poster child. And it's not necessarily that I am bragging about it because it wasn't worth bragging about when I would do the things I did. But I will tell you a few things about the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. It makes it, it, it just works so much better. You know, when you get a sponsor, tell them the truth, try it. They will only give you what you give them in information. And I would always call my sponsor after I changed jobs, 
after I took geographic, after I got married, again, again, and I've done it five times in sobriety. And the one person, and God love her, she's gone now. I remember I'm at the, uh, the powwow out in Palm Desert, and this woman that I adored, and Carol knows her too, my wonderful friend Shirelli, who died in sobriety, was the one woman that I had heard of that had been married five times too. And it was like this sense of relief because I looked at what she had and I says, oh my God, there's hope I could get better. But needless to say, you know, I would call Goldine after I made these major decisions. So I, I urge you, you know, if, if you're not, if you're not capable of getting honest, I get it, you know, but don't ask me to sponsor you. <laughs> you know, um, I've had that opportunity to sponsor girls that are just like me. And I'll tell you what, I would call Goldine and she said, my gosh, Lexi, another opportunity to grow. That was really, that sucked too. You know what I mean? <laughs> that just sucked. Um, but I would, I had the opportunities to sponsor girls that were just like me. And what I will tell you is, is that you can stay sober despite your behavior. And then there comes a time when the gig is up when the gig is up. And for me, it was at a 10 a.m. woman's meeting at Fellowship Hall. I had 37 years sober and I had gone to that meeting again. And I had topped off the list, you know, you will, you know, they say that thing about water seeks its own level. And I will tell you that, you know, the relationships along the way were not ideal. I did have a relationship with one human being that was amazing. For seven years of my life, I can tell you, I sincerely had found somebody that was an amazing human being. And we were married and he was a stepdad to my kids and he was an amazing man. And that ended up ending badly. Um, and I was able to see my part, but yet I wasn't willing to change things. And I went on to have a couple other relationships were not good, but I love talking about the last marriage because this is just the epitome of, no, you really haven't grown in this particular area. Um, I have been very fortunate for the last 33 years. I work in law enforcement and I'm a communications 911 dispatcher. And it is a mighty responsible job and there's a lot to it. And I will tell you that I have been fortunate enough to have good standing in that career. And it is a big deal for me. Um, but with that said, I, I go to the sheriff's trail ride and uh, I've got my favorite mayor and I go out there to go on this ride and uh, sheriff's trail ride. I wanna emphasize that with you, sheriff's trail ride. And I'm by myself and I've got my little Australian shepherd puppy and I've got my, my horse and I'm having a good time with no intention of meeting anybody. And I'm single at the time. And uh, this individual gets my attention. And I will tell you that what I ended up doing was marrying a guy on parole that I met at a sheriff's trail ride. <laughs> Is that amazing? Like magnet, you know? Um, and here's the sick part. Well, there's a lot sick to it because I was part of it. However, that night on the phone, he tells me this. You know, I'm on parole right now. 
So with all of my sobriety and all of that healthiness that you guys had given me freely, my response is, well, I can't date you till you're off parole. So as soon as he's off parole, he calls me and we're off to the races. And we do this, you know, back and forth tap dance. I don't know how else to describe it for 12 years of my life. And the only thing helping me hang on is that I have these wonderful women in Alcoholics Anonymous that love me despite my behavior. And I'm going to meetings and I do have commitments, but I am not addressing the problem, which has everything to do with me and very little to do with this man because he's doing what we do when we survive out there. Everything that we do when we survive out there is part of his life. And he told me that from the beginning. And my ego and pride says, I'm gonna be that person in his life that's gonna help him see the bright side of the street. And he's gonna want that. And you can't do that with another human being. And I'm not being honest. And that was when my sponsor, who was still alive at the time, Goldine, started saying, my God, Lexi, we've covered this before. It's a different person in the same story. You've done this before. And I don't wanna hear that. I still wanna be the victim. And things are just getting real. And I remember I had gone to a woman's retreat with my beautiful friend Shirelli. We were roommates at that retreat and we would stay up late and do the slumber party thing and talk about all kinds of things, not necessarily AA, but just politics and other things. She was an amazing human being. And I got to see her on a one-to-one where a lot of people didn't get that opportunity. And it was something that I will never ever regret having experienced because she was just wonderful and a lot more than a lot of people knew. And I was very fortunate to know that. But anyway, and that was on one of those retreats is when she told me that she'd been married five times. And I said, oh, there's hope. Anyway, <laughs> what I want to tell you is, is that I started seeking out some help. And I started getting honest. And along the way, Goldine had died. And I had to find another sponsor and I found the perfect replacement for her. And I mean that with all sincerity. I met this woman, Marianne Sutton, over 20 years ago. And she would go to the same meetings I do in my area of Apple Valley. And when Goldine died, I went up and I really, you know, if you, and you can do this too if you're new. Just because somebody tells you no, they won't sponsor you, doesn't mean you can't hound them, pound them down and make them accept <laughs> you. And that's what happened. Because she immediately told me, no, I don't think it's a good idea. And I'm like, that's okay. Can I have your number? You know, and I would go over her house and we had other things. In fact, today is no different than any other day. I had her on the phone and she's giving me the update on the 49er game because I am a hope to die 49er fan. And she's calling and saying, okay, this is the score. And I'm like, Yay! you know, as we're driving down here. And um, I just love her to death. And she's been everything good for me. But anyway, I want to tell you about that day when I got done with that women's meeting. And this was eight months before I was to say goodbye to that relationship. And I'm driving away from the meeting. And some of you may understand this. You know, just because you have years doesn't mean you have quality time. 
And here I sit at 37 years old and I've got a hole in my gut that I can't even begin to describe to you. And I'm driving up Indian, headed back up into the Morongo Valley where I live. And I'm thinking of suicide. And I got 37 years. Because it's like, what's the use, man? Look at who you are. It wasn't so much have a drink because I thought about that too. And then I thought about, you know, getting on that dance again. And I knew that's not what I want. I want an instant solution to this problem. I want instant solution. And um, I got dead quiet because I knew what I was doing. And there was no hiding. You're alone in your car. Nobody is there to help you deny to help you lie to yourself again, to help convince you of all the things that aren't true. And it was like, oh God, this is not working. And I cannot tell you where it came from, but it was like on the windshield of the screen of my car. And all of a sudden what I saw is exactly what's in our big book. And that is God could and would have sought. Because what I realized is that the biggest area of my life where I was unwilling, unwilling to let go of, was thinking that there was another human being on the face of this earth that could fill that hole and make me feel good, that I could replace alcohol with another human being and get that. And that's just not where it's at for me. But it took that afternoon for me to drive up to my house, pick up the phone and call my sponsor and say, and she knew I meant it. I said, I need help. Because if I don't do something now, I'm alone at this house. The significant other, other is gone. He's a horse farrier and he's off doing his thing. Um, and I've got days to be alone. And I knew that nobody would find me. Wouldn't find me. And then what happens? And I told her I needed help. And she took this deep breath and let it out like, oh my God. She'd never heard me like that before. And then things started to happen. And I got some outside help because I needed that too. And one of the things I was told by that wonderful man that I went to, and I went, I went for outside help for eight months. And this is just my story. You may not have to do this, but I'm so glad there is a section of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous that talks about if you have other issues, we suggest highly that you seek assistance and I'm glad it says that. But once again, it's as good as the information you give them. And at this point, I was willing to be honest about what I brought to the table. And I was able to work with this individual for eight months. And I mean solid eight months, along with writing another fourth step, getting honest on the fifth step and looking at that fourth column and being real about what I was doing, not what he was doing. Because if I do that, I would be dead tonight if I continued it. I couldn't do it any longer. I could not do that. So needless to say, he comes home from the farrier competition he's at. And I did something that you may or may not identify with, but it was major. I'd been wanting to ask this man a question for five years and I had been unwilling to do it because I knew the answer. And some of you may understand what that's like. So we sat on the front porch and he asked me about the things I was doing because I told him honestly, I'm, I'm, I'm really gonna pick up my meetings. I'm going to do some work in the big book and, and I'm gonna get some outside help. And he said, well, how's that going for you? And I said, well, 
it may be that I'm going to end up living alone or maybe with a female roommate. And his reaction was, wow, sorry to hear that. And so I pulled my chair over in front of this man and I asked him the question. And mind you, at this point, I've known this guy for between 11 and 12 years. And I sit in front of him and I says, I've got one question for you. I says, and you can take your time on answering me. You don't have to do it quickly. I looked him dead in the eye and I said, what's my mom's name? And he couldn't tell me. And I went, yeah. It's time for me to do more work. And it wasn't about blaming him. It was just about looking at the reality. What do I want in my sobriety? What is the quality of life that I want today that I have denied myself for years because I was half measuring it? I was doing exactly what the big book says will happen. If you want the promises, you have to do the things to get them. And my least favorite promise up until the last 10 years of my life has been regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. And I remember I would call Goldine and I would tell her, but you know, this is lousy. Things are bad. Man, you need to eat, you know, wine, 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 wine. And up again, here comes the common denominator thing. And she says, Lexi, until you change the behavior, you will continue to regret the past because you're bringing it right into today. You're doing exactly the same malarkey, just minus the booze. That's the only thing missing. She goes, for today. Because that doesn't mean you're going to be sober tomorrow. And as much as she loved me, she was not willing to coddle me, tell me that this disease isn't real and that it won't destroy you because, ladies and gentlemen, it's alive and kicking. But then things started to happen. And I was willing to go to any lengths. And on this one particular day, eight months later, I know the gig is up and I'm moving. And I tell him and I move out. The minute I make the decision to turn my life over to the care of God, as I don't understand God, because God is infamous to me. It, it doesn't come with a face. It doesn't come with a, 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 a real description, but it is in the light of all of your eyes sitting here. And that may sound trite and like a bunch of crap. And some of you may think that right now, but I'm telling you, I never know who the message is going to come from. On any given day, it can be somebody in a meeting of AA. It can be a coworker. It can be one of those people calling on 911 and their ass is falling off. And there will be something that they'll share and I'll say, that message was from me. So what has happened? At 57 years old, I bought my first house in my name by myself. I got a relationship with my two sisters that I never expected to get. One is still distant and it needs to be, it needs to remain that way. <laughs> um, I love her to death, but there's a lot of chaos. And I do, I, I ask myself the conscious decision before I call her, are you emotionally equipped to leave any conditions on this conversation? And if I am not, I do not dial the number because I know what accountability I have for my part, because generally that's followed with, I want to fix her and I just can't do it. I'm not equipped, not equipped. So I love her from a distance and talk to her on occasion. My little sister, ironically tonight on the way to this meeting 
has enough trust, trust and confidence to be where she called me and wanted to talk about some stuff going on with her. And that is an honor I can't begin to tell you because at one time I would have been the last person on earth. Thank you, Nick. I would have been the last person on earth that she would have called for any advice because of the quality of my life and sobriety. <laughs> you know, it was what it was. But I was able to talk to her and make a commitment that I will keep to be there for her tomorrow and we'll spend some quality time together. And the only purpose that I have in that whole time with her tomorrow is to listen because you guys have taught me how to do that. I don't need to fix her, but she's just asking me to be there for her. And that means a lot. I have two adult children that were both born in sobriety. One is 39 years old. And two weeks ago, she graduated and got her certificate to be a midwife. She is a labor and delivery nurse and is now going to deliver babies. I don't know how that human being came out of this one, but it did. And she is amazing. She is very tactical. Everything's got to be so. And her life works for her. And she has my two grandsons, and they are the most beautiful little boys that have ever been in my life. And I've got a 34-year-old daughter right now is somewhere in an RV in New Zealand with my six-year-old granddaughter and my two new grandbaby twin girls that I've never met yet. Uh, and they are cruising around with, she's got a husband, he's a gunnery sergeant in the Marines and in charge of the embassy out there. She cracked me up in February. She called me. She said, yeah, mom, I had dinner with my new best friend. And I'm like, okay, new best friend. It could happen. They're in the Marines. They're busy. She said, yeah, we had dinner with Caroline. And I'm like, okay, Caroline, glad. Caroline Kennedy. And I'm like, whoa. You know, I was so impressed with, and what'd you talk about? She goes, big spiders in Australia. And I thought that was great. Um, and I love these children. I love them. My responsibility is to be the best mom I can without an expectation that they will think that I'm the best mom. It's not my gig. I am not in charge of their opinion of me. I'm in charge of my opinion of who I am. Do I show up and do I keep my commitments? And I do that. I wanna be the cool grandma because that's who I am. Um, and a few weeks ago, I went to the California Science Center and ran around with those two little boys and uh, got to buy them bomber jackets with NASA on them and whatnot. And they thought they were so cool. And we just had a blast. Those are the things that I do. My life is not dr dramatic in a bunch of amazing ways. Um, I will tell you a year and a half ago, I met this individual and we became friends. And, uh, you know, we ended up uh, deciding that it was a good idea for us to take it a step further. And I had been alone for almost eight years and he was your 10 minute speaker. And I will tell you, <laughs> I will tell you this. Two years ago, I made a list at the suggestion of a roommate I had at the time. And I thought this was the corniest damn thing I'd ever heard of. She goes, make the list of what you want in a guy. And I'm like, you know, that that's like, blowing out the candles on the birthday cake and telling everybody, I'm not going to do that. I thought it was very uncool. And I thought, what the heck? And one night I was by myself and it was several months later and I went ahead and wrote some stuff down on paper and I put it away in the drawer and I left it alone. And uh, we weren't even dating yet. 
And we're sitting out in the back porch and we're doing this thing called emptying the bucket where you talk about your feelings and you say thank you and the other person talks about their feelings and you share. And the light bulb went on. And I said, oh my God, my list. And Gary looked at me weird, like, what, what list? And I go into my bedroom and I pull out this notebook and I read this list. And I said, this is everything you are. The reason why I had the list is because I'm everything on that list. I am. And you will seek your own level. You will seek your own level. And I show up every day and just try to be a good human. There is no big secret, except that I will tell you, and there's a lot of new guys in here. Welcome to the big show, guys. If you work those steps, and it says right in the big book, it used to say, you know, um, something about honesty to a different level. And now, you know, I'm glad they've given us the edge of not saying that you have to get that overnight. But I am glad for something else it says. Thank you, Nick. The other thing it's <laughs> great commitment, man. You're on it. <laughs> I'm glad it says more will be revealed. I'm glad that we don't arrive in Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm glad that there is room for growth. I am glad that I can stand up here this evening and tell you my story. And it may or may not be good. I will tell you there's another meeting tomorrow. And maybe that person you're supposed to hear is going to be there. I don't know. But I will tell you that everything that I've shared is the absolute truth. And that because I've stayed in Alcoholics Anonymous, despite some of my better ideas, that I stand before you. And life is the best it's ever been. It's not perfect, but it's the best it's ever been. And I look forward to tomorrow. And there was a time when I didn't do that even in here, but I do now. Please keep coming back. I hope you find something here. And I wanna thank you for helping me stay sober today. Thank you.